All right. Well, good morning. Again, new breed, bear with us. We had a little bit of technical difficulty, so hopefully you're still there, and hopefully we've uh, got this thing, thing rolling again. Hopefully by now you've got your Bibles open to Daniel chapter 4. Uh, and this morning as we, as we continue on in our series through the book of Daniel entitled Dominion, Faith, and Worship, I want us to take some time this morning and consider, consider the idea that pride goes before the fall. That pride goes before the fall. And obviously this concept is, is recorded in Scripture. Uh, this idea comes from Proverbs 16, verse 18, which says, Pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. You know, pride is, pride is one of those things that we have to be so careful with. Uh, we have to be on, on guard. It's Pride can be one of those things that, that it's not always seen. It can at times be hidden, but, but it causes massive devastation. J.C. Ryle once said, Let us watch against pride in every shape. Pride of intellect, pride of wealth, pride in our own goodness, pride in our own deserts. Nothing is so likely to keep a man out of heaven and prevent him seeing Christ as pride. So long as we think we are something, Ryle notes, we shall never be saved. Pride is devastating. And where sin is found, you can guarantee that pride is there. You can guarantee that pride is there. It has been argued, and I would agree, that that pride is the root of all evil. Charles Spurgeon once said that pride may... Pride may be set down as, quote, the sin of human nature. And, and we see this. In some sense, we, we know this. We see this going all the way back to the, to the garden with, with Adam and Eve. Because at the core of what was going on in their heart, the moment that they ate that fruit, it was pride. Because God had, God had created them and everything that God has made was good. And God was, God was walking in fellowship with them. And, and they, were, they were in the presence of God. And God gave them a command. He said, listen, you can eat from all of the trees of the garden. Eat from anything you want. But of the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil, don't eat from that. For the day that you eat it, you will surely die. And... <clears throat> Excuse me, we, we know the story. Satan, Satan shows up and, and he whispers this lie which triggers this response of pride where he says, has God really said that, that if you, you eat of that you'll die? No, 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 no. That's, that's not what will happen. You see, God, God knows that if you eat of it, uh, God, you will be like God. And he tries to convince them that, that, that God is a selfish God, that God isn't looking out for their best interest. And what happens in the mind of Adam and Eve is they start to believe that they deserve more than they do. They start to believe that they are better than they actually are. And they start to believe that, yes, we should be like God. Why shouldn't we be? And there in the garden, we see the devastating result of pride. Because as Adam and Eve ate that fruit, they enacted a curse that has been passed down to every generation that has followed. But we don't, we don't have to look all the way back 
to the garden to see that pride is, is devastating. We, we see this very thing in our society today at this very moment. For example, as we consider our world, we, as we look at the state of our nation right now, we are forced to reckon with the reality of racism and, and white supremacy. We are forced to acknowledge there are those who think so highly of themselves and their ethnicity that they are willing to continue to oppress, to marginalize, and further injustices on those who are not like them because they like themselves. We see the devastating reality of pride play itself out on cell phone videos and body cams. Pride is destructive and it brings with it a wake of pain and suffering. But if pride is the root of all evil, then perhaps John Chrysostom was on to something when he said that humility then is the root, mother, nurse, foundation, and bond of all virtue. So, so if pride is the great evil, then genuine humility, and humility that I would argue that can only come from a true understanding of the gospel, it is the great balm to the root of evil. And what we will see in our text this morning here in, in Daniel 4 is the truth that pride brings real devastation. We see the truth that God will humble the proud and we see the reality that humility will be the foundation for any genuine worship. For any genuine worship. So what I want to do this morning is, is draw out for you three principles regarding pride and humility as we walk through this story in Daniel 4. And, and we didn't start by reading the whole chapter, and, and we'll read some of it as we go. Uh, but for the sake of time, let me, let me try to give you the gist of the chapter here. And like I said, we'll go back and we'll read parts of it, but, but let me give you the gist of it. And I do want to encourage you throughout this week, if you haven't, uh, I, I've been so encouraged to hear people telling me that they've been reading the chapter, knowing that we're going to be looking uh, primarily at just a chapter each week. They've been reading it and studying it uh, beforehand. It's been encouraging to me as your pastor to hear you doing that. But if you haven't, since we're not going to read chapter four in its entirety, we will cover a good chunk of it. I want to encourage you to read it. Uh, and then next week to, to read chapter five in preparation for where we'll actually for two weeks from now. Uh, next week being Father's Day, Pastor uh, John will be coming and bringing us a message uh, along those, those lines. So we'll be taking a short break from Daniel. Uh, but all that to say, read Daniel chapter 4. But, but this chapter begins with, with Nebuchadnezzar offering what I would call a, a misguided, to say the least, declaration of praise. It's, it's misguided, and we'll come back and break that down. But so, so he offers this misguided declaration of praise. And, and then as the story progresses, once again, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And, and in this dream, like the dream that he had before, he, he, he doesn't understand it. He's somewhat unnerved by it. And, and we, we catch a glimpse of what he sees beginning there in verse 10. And in verse 10 it says, in, in the visions of my mind, this is Nebuchadnezzar, he says, in the visions of my mind as I was lying in the bed I saw this. There was a tree in the middle of the earth and, and it was very tall. 
The tree grew large and strong, and its top reached to the sky, and it was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful. Its fruit was abundant, and on it was food for all. Wild animals found shelter under it. The birds of the sky lived in its branches, and every creature was fed from it. Verse 13, as I was lying in my bed, I also saw in the visions of my mind a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. And he called out loudly, cut down the tree and chop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump with its roots in the ground and with a band of iron and bronze around it in the tender grass of the field." Let him be drenched with dew from the sky and share the plants of the earth with the animals. Let his mind be changed from that of a human and let him be given the mind of an animal for seven periods of time. This word is by decree of the watchers and the decision is by command from the holy ones. This is, this is so that the living will know that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms. He gives it to anyone he wants. And sets the lowliest of people over it. So Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. This is what he sees. This is what he hears. And no one could interpret this dream for him. Except, once again, for Daniel. And so as Daniel hears the dream and God gives him understanding of its interpretation, Daniel is somewhat disturbed by it. But nevertheless, he tells the king, what it means. And he says, Nebuchadnezzar, the tree, that's you. It's you, Nebuchadnezzar. And, and what you are seeing is what God is going to do to you. So Daniel recounts and explains this. And after he does so, his advice to Nebuchadnezzar is recorded there in verse 27. And Daniel says, therefore, may my advice seem good to you, my king. Separate yourself from your sins by doing what is right and from your injustices by showing mercy to the needy. And he says, perhaps there will be an extension of your prosperity. And so we're left with that call to repentance from Daniel, and some time goes by. Actually, it's 12 months to be exact from when Daniel interprets this dream for King Nebuchadnezzar. 12 months goes by, and God doesn't do anything. And in that time, Nebuchadnezzar does not heed Daniel's calls to repentance. And we read this beginning in verse 28. And all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of Twelve months, as he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, the king exclaimed, Is this not Babylon the great that I have built to be a royal residence by my vast power and for my majestic glory? And while the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared that your kingdom has departed from you. You will be driven away from people to live with the wild animals and you will feed on grass like cattle for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms and he gives to them and he gives them to anyone he wants. At that moment, the message against Nebuchadnezzar 
was fulfilled. And so in this chapter of Scripture, in Daniel chapter 4, we see the reality of pride going before the fall. So again, as we flesh this out some, I want to I offer you three principles, three principles to you that will hopefully serve us as we seek to grow in humility and avoid the devastation that pride brings. So here is the first principle that I want you to see. The first principle is this. False humility will not prevent the devastation of pride. False humility will not prevent the devastation of pride. Look with me again at the beginning of our chapter this morning. It says this, beginning in verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar, to those of every people, nation, and language who live on the earth, may your prosperity increase. And Nebuchadnezzar says, I am pleased to tell you about the miracles and wonders the Most High God has done for me. How great are His miracles. How mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom and His dominion is from generation to generation. Now, if you just read that by itself, it appears at first glance that Nebuchadnezzar is somewhat turning a corner. It appears as if he is beginning to worship God. But as you read this chapter carefully, there are some clues in the chapter that help us see that this worship from Nebuchadnezzar is false. And any resemblance of humility here at the beginning sections of the chapter is nothing short of a false humility. Let me show you. First, the quote-unquote praise of God centers around what God has done for Nebuchadnezzar, not who God is. Verse 2, we see it there. He says, I am pleased to tell you about the miracles and wonders the Most High God has done for me. You see, he wasn't pleased to tell them who God was. He was pleased, first and foremost, to tell them what God has done for me. But second, we see in this chapter that we see Nebuchadnezzar still giving recognition to his false gods and claims those gods are the ones who are working through Daniel. Because in verse 8, Nebuchadnezzar is speaking of when Daniel came to interpret the dream and he says, finally, Daniel named Belteshazzar after the name of my God and a spirit of the holy gods is in him. So even though Nebuchadnezzar declares that the Most High, his kingdom is an eternal kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation, Nebuchadnezzar is still believing that he is not God alone. That his gods, Nebuchadnezzar's gods, the Chaldean gods, that they still stand, that they are still working. And he even attributes what Daniel has done to his gods because the spirit of the holy gods is in Daniel according to Nebuchadnezzar. But third, after receiving the warning in the dream, the the third way we know that this is a false humility at the beginning of the chapter because Daniel calls Nebuchadnezzar to repent and after being given time to repent, Verse 29 shows us where his heart truly was. 
At the end of the 12 months, as he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, the king exclaimed, is this not Babylon the great that I have built to be a royal residence by my vast power and my majestic glory? You see, in that statement, it's no longer a hidden pride. It's a declaration of pride. You see his pride. And this is the very pride that was spoken of in the dream, in the vision. You see, there's significance even in the description of the tree that represents Nebuchadnezzar. Because you remember the the description of the tree there in verse 10. It says there was a tree in the middle of the earth and it was very tall. The tree grew large and strong and its top reached to the sky. Well, there has been another time in Scripture where something was tall and reached to the heavens, reached into the sky. And this is the second time in the book of Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar has been compared to the Tower of Babel. And if you remember what we talked about in our very first sermon in chapter 1, what the Tower of Babel was all about. It was about the people trying to build a tower to the heavens to make a name for themselves. It flowed out of their pride and out of their arrogance. It was about them thinking they were greater than they were. And here in verse 10, once again, there is another thing growing tall, or so he thinks, reaching the heavens whose glory will be seen by all. And in that description in verse 10, once again, we are forced to consider the Tower of Babel. And just like the people at the Tower of Babel, Nebuchadnezzar is still trying to make a name for himself, but like The Tower of Babel, as we will see in just a moment, God always humbles the proud. So you go back to his declaration of praise at the beginning of chapter 4, and you are left with the conclusion that this is, at best, false humility. And to reiterate our principle, false humility will not prevent the devastation of pride and church if this is not a warning to us. It is a warning that we too are not so holy that we cannot be tempted to buy into a false humility and think that that false humility will keep us from the devastation of pride. It is a warning to check and make sure that how we live our lives on Sunday morning is reflected in how we live when no one is watching. Because Nebuchadnezzar declared to the people how great are God's miracles and how mighty his wonders. And when he was alone in his palace, he declared how great am I and how mighty my wonders. You see, church, it's it's one thing to come into this place of worship and declare how amazing our God is, but then to walk out of these doors and think, I got this. God was great in there, but I can handle it out here. It is one thing to be broken over our sin at the communion table and then to judge those who we won't even invite to sit around our tables. There is a temptation for us to boast in what we can accomplish, in what we can do, and in the little kingdoms that we think that we have built by ourselves apart from God. And this is nothing short of pride. 
You know, the thing is, brothers and sisters, that one, of, one thing that the turmoil of our country at this current stage right now as we, we turn on, as we turn on the news and as we watch, that there is something that we are learning. One of the things that we are learning is how many proclaiming Christians have a false humility. Because church, I'm just going to be honest with you, it takes some sort of pride to declare through song that our God reigns and that we are his creation made in his image and then go out and slander those who are fighting to help others see that beca- to see this because they don't want the kingdoms that they have built to be stripped of any power for the good of image bearers. It takes some sort of pride to declare that our God is a God who leaves the 99 for the one, that our God sympathizes with our weakness and understands our sorrows, sorrows and then refuse to weep with those who weep. It takes some sort of pride to neglect image bearers who are truly broken and hurting at this moment and need you to comfort them to spend your time arguing about why critical race theory may or may not be antithetical to the gospel. Brothers and sisters, this false humility that we are seeing and that is displayed even among proclaiming Christians will not prevent from the disaster of pride. Our God will and he must humble the proud. And oh, how I pray that we would avoid that. How I pray that we would be people marked by humility because again, God will humble the proud. And this leads to our second principle this morning. That the Lord will humble the proud. The Lord will humble the proud. Church, this is, this is the whole point of the dream. God is warning Nebuchadnezzar that if Nebuchadnezzar will not humble himself under the mighty hand of God, then God will do it for him and it will not be pleasant. I mean, listen to what God is going to do to humble Nebuchadnezzar beginning in verse 24. Daniel says, this is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree of the Most High that has been issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people to live with wild animals. You will feed on grass like cattle and be drenched with dew from the sky for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms and he gives them to anyone he wants. And church, that is not figurative speech. God is telling Nebuchadnezzar that you, a man who boasts in yourself, who boasts in your accomplishments, who boasts in your appearance, who boasts in how people perceive you, one who is regal and royal and king, of all nations, God says, I am going to send you to, be, to live with wild animals. I'm going to drive you out of your palace and drive you out of your kingdom. And if that is not enough, you're going to, to somewhat lose your mind so much so that you will feed on grass like cattle. You'll be drenched with dew of the sky for seven periods of time. But you see, not only in this declaration to Nebuchadnezzar do you see what God will do to humble Nebuchadnezzar, but you get more insight into why. Because Nebuchadnezzar has failed to acknowledge the Most High Ruler. He has not honored God as God 
And Nebuchadnezzar has not understood his own place in the created order. Therefore, God will humble him. And you see the reason that God must humble, and this is so important, church, the reason that God must humble is because pride is a direct attack on the only one who is truly worthy. Pride is a direct attack on the only one who is truly worthy. Scripture over and over speaks of the majesty and the worth and the splendor of our God. First Chronicles 29.11 says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Psalm 93 verses 1 and 2, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed, enveloped in strength. The world is firmly established. It cannot be shaken. Your throne has been established from beginning. You are from eternity. Paul declares in 1 Timothy 1, 17, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. We see the picture in Revelation 4 when it says that whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast, listen to this, they cast their crowns before the throne and say, our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Our God and our God alone is worthy of praise. And when we boast in ourselves, we are attempting to rob God of the glory that is rightly due him. It is cosmic treason. Our pride is not a light matter, and God will, and he must humble the proud. But I want to be clear about this. God does not humble the proud because he is some fickle, insecure adolescent that needs your attention. God humbles the proud because he alone is worthy, and he knows it. And he will not share the glory that is rightly due his name. I want to tell you this morning, church, that God will always humble the proud. And for some of us, it may come in this life. God humbled, as we will see, Nebuchadnezzar in this life. He drove him mad to go live with the animals and to eat the grass of the field until he was able and willing to acknowledge the Most High Ruler. God humbled Moses when he refused to let him enter the promised land. God humbled the Philistines and the Israelites when a shepherd boy killed the giant Philistine warrior. God will at times humble in this life. And church, we have to reckon with that. I genuinely believe that many Christians don't think God would still do this today. But, but I'd be willing to bet that for many of us, myself included, if we took an honest look back and examined our life, specifically some periods where pride was flowing, 
I believe there are times we would see where God has humbled us. And many times they have been hard and many times they have been painful. Often they can be embarrassing, but ultimately it is for our good and the glory of God. But I want you to know that there will be times when God does not humble specific areas of pride in this life. And sometimes that can be difficult for us to see as we look at the world and we see pride and arrogance flowing and we pleading that God would humble and break people. There are times when he won't in this life. But know that they will be humbled in the life to come because God will always humble the proud. Scripture tells us that it is destined for man to die once and then face judgment. And hear me, every human being will stand before the Almighty and whether saved or not, every knee will bow in the presence of our God. And pride will quickly dissipate in the presence of our holy God. But you know one of the amazing things we see about our God in this passage of Scripture is is that God wants us to grow in humility now. And even if you are struggling with pride at this very moment, know that God Almighty longs for you to repent. And we see this very thing in our text with Nebuchadnezzar because after Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar what the dream means, he says this again in verse 27, Therefore, may my advice seem good to you, my king. Separate yourself from your sins by doing what is right and from your injustices by showing mercy to the needy and perhaps there will be an extension of your prosperity. Daniel calls Nebuchadnezzar to repent. And and I don't have time to flesh this out right now, though we will flesh this out soon in the book of Daniel. But notice what that call to repent entails because it is not just a change of mind. It is a change of mind that leads to a change in behavior. So for Nebuchadnezzar, repentance doesn't just mean recognizing that God is God. It doesn't just re- mean recognizing that, that, that he has done wrong. It also means showing mercy to those who he has been unjust to. I'm going to stop there before I chase that too far. But Daniel calls the king to repent. And what I want you to see and what is so amazing and such a blessing is that God gives him time to do it. God gives him time to do it. And this reminds us of what Paul writes in Romans 2, 4. It says, Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. And church, that's amazing all on its own. That though we sin and rebel against God, he would be right in that moment to destroy us. The moment pride wells up in us, he would be right to cast us away from his presence for all of eternity. And yet our God shows kindness and patience and forbearance meant to lead us to a place of repentance. But I want, I want to be clear, we cannot confuse God's patience with passivity. 
Because God is allowing you time to repent, it does not mean that God is overlooking your sin because there is not one that he will overlook. But God is patient with Nebuchadnezzar. He is not passive. He is patient with Nebuchadnezzar. And that patience and kindness is meant to lead him to a place of repentance that he would be spared from the devastation of pride and spared from the pain of humiliation to bring him into a humble spirit. And God gives Nebuchadnezzar one year. And during this year, Nebuchadnezzar fails to repent. And so what happens in the story is everything that God has said would come true comes true. Nebuchadnezzar is in his palace and he is boasting in his kingdom. He is boasting in what he thinks he has done in the name that he has built for himself. And the the scripture tells us that while the words were still in his mouth, God spoke to him. And God says, now is the time when I will humble you. And everything that God said came to pass. And Nebuchadnezzar is driven out of his kingdom. He's driven away from his people. And in some sense, he is driven mad because later Nebuchadnezzar will say, when my sanity returned to me, and he is living among the wild animals, he is eating grass as food. He is waking up with the dew on his body. Everything that is not royal and regal by the world's standards. But after this time of humbling, this is what we see in verse 34. But at the end of these days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven and my sanity returned to me. And notice this. Then I praised the Most High and honored and glorified Him who lives forever. And in that statement, we see that God has humbled Nebuchadnezzar. And now we see Nebuchadnezzar's humility in his genuine worship. This leads to the final principle that I have for you this morning. I've written it a couple different ways, so I'm just going to give them both to you. You can pick which one you like best. Humility is the foundation for all genuine worship. Humility is the foundation for all genuine worship. Another way that I was thinking about writing this principle is that humility is revealed in and flows out of genuine worship. Humility is revealed in and flows out of genuine worship. And I I want you to notice the difference in Nebuchadnezzar's declaration there in verse 34 compared to where we started at the beginning of the chapter. He says this, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. 
and he does what he wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can block his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now that line is extremely important, even when you consider what we looked at last week in chapter 3. Because if you remember when Nebuchadnezzar built this giant statue and threatened to throw anyone into the fire who would not bow down and worship, Nebuchadnezzar says when challenging Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he says, says, what God can, can, can prevent you from feeling the wrath of my judgment? What God can protect you from the furnace? And here in this statement, you see Nebuchadnezzar's humility. You see the stark contrast between where he was in his pride because he says, there is no one who can block his hand or say to him, what have you done? And this worship from Nebuchadnezzar is no longer focused on himself. It's no longer only about what God can do for him. It is centered around who God is. See, Nebuchadnezzar understands what he missed before. When he says, all the inhabitants of the earth, and that includes himself, are counted as nothing. They are counted as nothing. And now, Nebuchadnezzar declares that God and God alone is worthy. God and God alone is great. And God's kingdom alone is an everlasting kingdom. And what we see is humility that is revealed in how he worships. His worship is no longer about him. Now here's my question for you. Does your worship reveal humility? Does your worship reveal humility? Here are a couple follow-up questions to help you maybe answer that. Are you more concerned with what others may think about you on Sunday morning when you worship than you are about worshiping God? Are you more concerned with what others may think about you on Sunday mornings when you worship than you are with worshiping God? Are you afraid that people will judge you if you declare how amazing God is or shout in joy at the salvation you have received? Are you afraid that people will judge you? Is God only worthy of your worship when he does what you want? Now, I don't want you to just say no when I ask that question. I want you to examine how you worship. Is God only praised? Is his name only hallowed? Is is his goodness only declared when he does what you want? Does how you worship God genuinely reveal a humble spirit? But, But I do want you to notice this. See, not only is humility revealed in genuine worship, but I would contend that humility that will be sustained must flow out of genuine worship. Meaning that when that genuine worship will keep us humble. 
Listen, when we are worshiping God first and foremost for who he is, now again, I said this in weeks prior, I don't want you to ever hear me say that you can't worship God for what he does because God has done amazing things. We know who God is because he does things. We know that our God saves because he has saved. I'm not saying that you can't worship God for what he does, but, but we want to first and foremost worship God for who he is. And when we are worshiping our God for who he is, when, when we marvel at the fact that the God who spoke all this into existence who we rebelled against, yet, yet he sought us out and redeemed us through Christ when we reflect on the truth that this is our God and worship him simply for who he is. It will humble us. When we realize that our God is holy, just, righteous, good, Father, faithful, Savior, and friend. And when we consider that he will never leave us and never forsake us. When we realize that he always keeps his word even when we don't. When we consider that he would love us in spite of who we are. It will force us into humility because we will see that he is so worthy and we are not. But even more than that, when we worship God with the gospel in mind, it will always humble us. The gospel humbles us. And you know what's amazing is that even in this story in Daniel 4, God is pointing us to consider the gospel and humbly worship in light of it. I've told you, and I've tried to do this throughout every chapter, that there are echoes of the gospel riddled throughout this book. And did you catch the echo of the gospel in Daniel, in Daniel 4? It's there in verse 17. Because as the Holy One is speaking in the dream, he says this. This word is by the decree of the watchers, and the decision is by command from the Holy Ones. This is so that the living will know. Listen to this. This is so that the living will know that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms. He gives them to anyone he wants, and check this out, and sets the lowliest of people over them. He sets the lowliest of people over them. And in this declaration, God is reminding us that he uses the humble and through the humblest of men a kingdom would be established that would never be shaken. This reminds us of Philippians 2, doesn't it? Which says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider with equality with God as something to be grasped. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The gospel humbles us. Because it reminds us that we are sinners who have rebelled against a worthy God. And we have tried to rob the one who is rightly due glory and honor and praise of his glory, honor, and praise. 
And we are by nature deserving of wrath. And God should punish us. God should destroy us for the cosmic treason that we have committed. And yet, the Son of God humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant, wrapping himself in this flesh so that he could walk among us and keep God's law perfectly on our behalf. Therefore, not deserving any death, not deserving any punishment, not for a moment did Jesus try to rob the Father of the glory that was due his name. But he did all that he did for the glory of the Father. And Jesus went to the cross and was crucified. And God poured out his hatred of pride, his hatred of arrogance, his hatred of rebellion and treason on Jesus. And he died and was buried and God raised him from the dead. And through the humility of Christ in his death and resurrection, God has established a kingdom that will not be shaken. A kingdom that we are invited into through faith and repentance, being made right with God because of Jesus' work on the cross. And we are reminded that all of this is because of what Christ has done. And he alone is worthy, not us. And the gospel, when we truly dwell on the message and the truth of it and the salvation, that we have received because of Christ, it ought to humble us. And if we are reflecting on the gospel and are somehow able to boast in ourselves, then the gospel we are reflecting on probably isn't the true gospel. Because the gospel reminds us that in Christ, all that we have and all that we are is because of him and not us. And any good that we have is because Christ is in us. And any praise that is, that is worthy uh, to be heard by the Father uttered from our lips is because we are made right by the blood of Jesus. And we will never have the humility that we need apart from Christ. And so if you are here and you don't know Jesus, if you are listening and you don't know Jesus, I, I want to remind you that God will judge the proud. And it is only those with a humble spirit that can avoid the devastation of pride, but only those who have placed their faith in Jesus can have this kind of humility. And I want you to know that Jesus loves you. He knows that you have sinned. He knows that you have rebelled against God. And that is the reason that he came, to live the life that we should live, but we can't, to die the death that we deserve to die. He's raised from the dead. And the invitation that is extended by Christ still stands today that you are, you are welcome to come in faith and repentance and find salvation through what Christ has done. And my prayer is that we, the people who claim to profess faith in Christ, that we would be marked by humility, seeking to make much, not of ourselves, but of the only one who is worthy believing that it is God and God alone who saves, believing that the victory is God and God alone, that our hope is in God and God alone, that our joy is in God and God alone, and we can have victory and hope and joy in the Lord because through Christ we are in him and he is in us. But my prayer is that we would seek to make much of the one who has saved us believing that false humility will not save us from the devastation of pride and believing that God will humble the proud, but also believing 
that humility is the foundation for genuine worship. And we want to worship because God and God alone is the most high ruler. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word. I thank you for the reminder that pride is devastating and pride is, God, if we are honest, at the root of our sin, it is the root of our, at the root of our rebellion. It is, it is ingrained within us from birth because Adam sinned. And our pride separates us from you. Our arrogance separates us from you. But Lord, we praise you. We give you all the praise and all the glory that you would be willing to save, that you would be willing to redeem a people who rebelled against you. And God, I pray that as we reflect on that and how amazing you are and what it cost for us to be saved, that we would be humble. As we worship you, we would grow in humility and through our humility, we would worship you all the more. God, keep us from being like Nebuchadnezzar. Help us to walk humbly before you, our God, believing that you and you alone are worthy. So God, we give you all the praise this morning. We give you all the glory. We give you all the honor, all the worth. It is due your name. Give us grace to not ever try to steal it from you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.